This is an ABC podcast. So how's COVID-19 lockdown treating you? You starting to feel like each day is just a repeat of the one before, time ticking away in a repetitive, monotonous kind of loop? Are you bored? I'm David Rutledge, you're in the Philosopher's Zone, and stay with me because this week we're taking boredom by the scruff of the neck and giving it a bit of a shake. Not with the aim of overcoming boredom, but more interrogating it. Because when you pay close attention to boredom, what you find can be surprisingly interesting. And I'm joined this week by one of the world's leading philosophers of this underrated facet of human experience. Um, my name is Lars Svensson. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Bergen, Norway. Lars Svensson has been thinking about boredom for over 20 years. In 1999, he published A Philosophy of Boredom, which has become something of a classic, delving into literature, psychology, theology, popular culture, as well as traditional philosophy. And it's a book with some interesting personal history behind it. Boredom had become sort of the dominating theme of my life for quite some time, especially the last year of writing my PhD dissertation. I was so bored for that entire year, which also tells us something. We sometimes think that being bored is about not having enough to do. That's nonsense. I mean, the boredom of the really heavy workloads can be can really be the worst. So there was that thing going on. Philosophy had lost pretty much all its significance for me. I could not see any point to what I was doing. I was doing it. I was doing it capably, but I re- it really didn't matter to me on, on a personal level. I didn't see any great relevance of what I was doing. In addition to that, I, I was part of this circle of people. We did a lot of clubbing, and one could also say that there was quite a bit of use of recreational drugs and so on in, in, in that scene. And within one close friend of mine, he wanted to spice things up even more. Perfectly regular MDMA or cocaine So wasn't sufficient. So he had a brilliant idea. Let's try heroin. And the very first time he did it, he OD'd and died. So it, it was this dynamic in this uh, milieu in which you had to push your boundaries all the time in order to escape a boredom that was always there defining our existence. So for me, that little book on boredom, it was just an explosion. I think I wrote it in 10 weeks. It was was virtually finished. (laughs) I just had to sit down and type it out. It's interesting to me that your response was to write a work of philosophy rather than, I don't know, taking up carpentry or or learning a musical instrument. But then um, I'm reminded that Heidegger once observed that philosophy is born in the nothingness of boredom. Is that what happened here? I guess so. I I was actually considering to leave philosophy altogether, thinking I I have to do something sensible uh, with my life. But then the thought struck me that, Perhaps I can use these tools I have, in fact, acquired studying philosophy for so long to try to come to terms with this thing that's defining my entire existence at the moment. And what was so strange was that writing about boredom made philosophy come alive for me again. Uh, 
because I wrote this about something that actually mattered to me, something I, I cared about. So writing that book on boredom made it possible for me to continue to do philosophy. And have you since then found yourself bored with philosophy again, or, or with certain kinds of philosophy, perhaps? Of course. Uh, I mean, academic philosophy can be mind-numbingly boring, especially the sort of academic philosophy. His main ambition is to show some technical proficiency, uh, and of course you can admire a certain skill in using certain tools of the trade. But the thing is that so much of it is written only to qualify you for a position or something like that. It's not actually meant to be read by anyone to whom it might have some sort of significance. It's a form of writing that exists in this strange field, completely detached from all real human concerns. And I think that so much philosophy is that. Uh, people write about philosophers' problems rather than human problems. And that kind of philosophy rarely engages me. Well, you've written a very interesting book, and in that book, you make the distinction between situational boredom and existential boredom, and I'd like to talk about the latter in a moment, but when it comes to more simple forms of situational boredom, the one I find really interesting is repetition, because repetition can be deathly boring, but also kind of fascinating, and and what I want to begin by asking you is this. If an experience is delightful and interesting the first time we experience it, then why does that delight and interest fade over time with subsequent iterations of the same experience? Because there doesn't seem to be any necessary reason why that should happen. No, but maybe the first time you experience it, it sort of tickles you. It's fun. It doesn't go much deeper than that. And through repetition it becomes clear to you that this is actually pretty shallow because some things can be repeated uh, an indefinite number of times. I mean, there are certain musical pieces, for instance, you can listen to them over and over and over and over again, and you never grow tired of them. Say Brian Eno's Another Green Earth is one of those albums for me. I mean, I can't count the number of times I've listened to that album. So... Perhaps some things, when we revisit them, there isn't much more there to find. Other things, when you revisit them, you always pick up something new, something fresh. But of course, what seems highly repetitive to some people will not seem to be to others. I mean, some music will seem extremely repetitive, one-dimensional to some people, whereas for others it carries a lot of variation. Say a lot of minimalist music, say Philip Glass. To some people that sounds like a really quite stressful repetition of essentially the same note over and over and over and over again, whereas for people who are used to that musical genre, you're listening for the longer musical line and you perceive the music to actually move quite slowly with a lot of variation. Uh, the same with a lot of old German music from uh, the 70s. Uh, I think for me that music contains a lot of dynamic, even when you go into bands such as, say, Can and Jackie Liebsau's uh, motoric drumming. I mean, he came from jazz, but then he went for something that to the unfamiliar ear 
might sound as if it's just doing exactly the same thing over and over again. But actually, he's a brilliant drummer. You just have to be able to pick up the variation contained in that apparently monotonous pattern of drumming. What about existential boredom then? Because this is something that maybe goes a little deeper than the kind of thing that we're talking about. What is existential boredom, first of all? Hmm, perhaps we should try to figure out what boredom is in general before we go there. And, and the closest I come to definition of boredom is to say that it's a lack of meaning. Then, of course, the next question is, what on earth do you mean by meaning? <laughs> and meaning is notoriously tricky to pin down. I, I suspect that it's so basic that you really cannot define it in terms of something more fundamental, but you can shed light on it through other concepts. And my candidate for that would be caring. To experience something as meaningful is to care about it. And I think boredom arises when we cannot do what we care about, or we have to do something that we do not care about. Now, when it comes to existential boredom, what is uh, so characteristic of that is that you really lost your orientation in life. You really don't know what to care about. Nothing presents itself to you as a source of genuine possibility for experiencing something of some significance. And in that state, it really is as if eternity has come down from the heavens and entered your life. But it's a bad kind of eternity. You're stuck in and now you're stuck in this present that's essentially defined by being empty. That collapse of meaning, though, that you're talking about, people often describe that as a characteristically modern phenomenon, like the ball got rolling with the Renaissance and the collapse of theological certainty over the, over the subsequent centuries, and then we had Nietzsche in the 19th century and the death of God, and now here we are adrift in a meaningless universe, and that's supposedly the modern condition. But Boredom has been around for a very long time. We find it in, in some very ancient texts, like the book of Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew Bible, whose narrator is existentially bored. All is vanity. He, he can't bring himself to care about anything. So all that being the case, what is it about existential boredom that makes it a modern malaise? Well, of course, we, <clears throat> we haven't got any empirical studies going back centuries precise measurements of the amount of boredom going around in, in the population. But what we do see is, yeah, certainly there are writings on boredom or close relatives of boredom uh, throughout history. From Ecclesiastes, uh, in Seneca, his writings about uh, tedium vita. But it seems to be a condition that primarily afflicted royalty, nobility, uh, monks, and so on. It was, to some extent, uh, a condition for the privileged few. What we see is that words for boredom pop up 
in so many different languages approximately at the same time, around 1750, 1760, 17, something happens there. And then people start to write more about boredom. And as we enter the Romantic era, there's virtually this explosion of writings on, on boredom. And I think that what has happened here is that boredom, to some extent, has become more democratized. It's no longer just for the privileged few. And why is that? Well, to some extent, I think uh, there's a very plain explanation, namely, more people got more affluent. If you're living on the brink of starvation, you have a lot of problems, but boredom is probably not one of them because you have something you care about in your life. You actually, you have to get food on the table if you're going to survive. So your life is defined by a struggle for existence that is no longer there when you're more, more affluent. And so I think that's one part of the explanation. But of course, uh, the falling away of certain traditional forms of uh, meaning also plays into this. And you mentioned Nietzsche in uh, Death of God. Actually, Nietzsche wasn't the first to pronounce that. When you read Hegel's Glauben und Wissen from 1804, he writes that the fundamental feeling of our age can be summarized in the words, God is dead. So it's actually Hegel pronounces the death of God. Uh, Nietzsche just visits the grave. And of course, in a world with God at its center, you have this source of meaning present to you. As God is left out, you need something to fill that void. And of course, here we also have the emergence of individualism. I mean, for us today, it's so patently obvious to us that uh, we are individuals, that it's hard to us, uh, hard for us to think of ourselves in any other terms. Uh, what would it mean not to be an individual? But I mean, the individual is a historical character that's just been around for a few centuries. If you went up to Leonardo da Vinci say and asked if uh, he considered himself an individualist, very eager to, uh, on self-realization. He wouldn't have understood what you were talking about. And the individual is this character that's put on earth in order to become him or her self, whose main task in life is to realize him or her self. Or in Nietzsche's word, the task is to become who you are. Uh, so what has happened then is that uh, this meaning that in the theocentric universe was a given meaning that consisted of taking part in God, essentially, now becomes this uh, highly individualized meaning in which every individual have to find their own meaning in life. An individual meaning, preferably a, an authentic meaning. And that can be pretty hard. And when we fail to achieve such meaning, we, we tend to suffer from that because it's something we need. As humans, we do not just need food, water, clothing, and so on. We, we need meaning. We need something 
to care about. The problem with the existential boredom guy is that he, he says, I haven't got a clue what I care about, what I should care about. On RN, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest, the Norwegian philosopher Lars Svensson. We're talking about monotony, repetition, meaninglessness, all constituent elements of that very familiar experience, boredom. We tend to attach a negative moral significance to boredom and and we assume that it's a problem. But what if that assumption is wrong? I wonder if there are things that boredom can teach us if we're prepared to turn around and pay attention and sort of dive into boredom. Yeah, I think think you're right. Perhaps the first thing one should do uh, when being struck by boredom is not to try to escape it. Because if, if the first thing you do then is to grab your remote control, putting on another Netflix show or something like that. You're essentially living your life like a junkie. Uh, you have to get your next fix. Perhaps another way to go about it is to really let boredom hit you because it might have something to teach you. Boredom can be like a voice of conscience. It tells you something about how you live your life. And I think that is what Nietzsche is getting at when he writes that whoever entrenches himself completely against boredom also entrenches himself against himself. Uh, That person will lose out of something uh, that boredom might have to tell him or her. And I think that what boredom can do, say now, if if you lock down in in quarantine during the coronavirus or something like that, it can press you to ask that question, what do I care about. Uh, Of course, people care about different things. But for most people, the majority of their meaning in life is tied up to their attachment, their relation to a few people. Maybe you've lost those people out of sight, diving into wider social life, diving to uncompromisingly into Facebook updates and and so on. So if boredom strikes you and pushes you to pose that question, what do I really care about? It might provide you some opportunities for a reorientation in life. And we so rarely get those opportunities anymore. I mean, something has happened. We have become increasingly less capable of dealing with empty time. And there is this experiment, which I think is hilarious. We did a couple of different varieties of it. The basic outlay of the experiment was to ask test subjects to sit in a room all alone, doing absolutely nothing for 15 minutes. My favorite variety of the experiment was the one in which the test subjects were given an electric shock before it began. Of course, not dangerous, but painful. And then they were told that, well, if giving yourself electric shocks will help you deal with the situation, you're free to do so during those 15 minutes. And a remarkable number of people chose to give themselves electric shocks. 
There was even one guy who gave himself 180 electric shocks in 15 minutes, but that guy, he had to like it. Uh, I think there's something kinky going on there. Um, and, and then we might ask ourselves, well, what is this test a test of? Is it a test of an ability to deal with boredom or loneliness? And of course, the, the experiment itself doesn't tell us anything about that. What it does tell us something about is an inability to fill yourself with yourself. So we really don't learn how to be bored anymore, how to relate to such situations other than grasping for our smartphones or something like that. I mean, if you're at home and you're watching this Netflix movie with your girlfriend or, or boyfriend or, or, or whatever, and he or she gets up to go to the toilet, then you have, say, three minutes of empty time. How many times out of 10 would you immediately pick up your smartphone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and open an app? I'd say for a lot of people, it would be 10 out of 10. Well, it kills the time, doesn't it? And this expression, to kill time, really interests me, especially when you think that there's a sense in which time is the thing that eventually kills us. But when we're bored, we kill time. And Heidegger wrote a lot about boredom and and time. And I have to, you know, Heidegger kills me a little bit a lot of the time. But what was Heidegger's insight about boredom and time? And is it a, is it a helpful one? I think that actually Heidegger's discussion of boredom is, is probably the most careful, concrete, phenomenological analysis uh, he, he ever did. And I think it's quite interesting stuff. But then he goes from the more superficial varieties of boredom. And then he tries to get down to really, really profound boredom or deep boredom. And then his idea is that if you only get deep enough, you will realize yourself to yourself the most fundamental aspects of your existence will reveal themselves to you if you only get deep enough i'm not entirely convinced that that is correct i think that uh, you might go really really deep into boredom and uh, you'll never reach firm ground in there you will only get deeper and deeper getting more and more lost. So there is this almost hint of Cartesianism in, in Heidegger here, which of course Heidegger would be terribly upset to hear, of some fundamental subject deep down there that will sort of pop up and show you how you can make these projections to the world and so on. But the whole movement of his analysis is going from the superficial into the really deep stuff and in the deep stuff everything will be revealed. Boredom, the deep, profound boredom, essentially has the same function as anxiety for Heidegger. It reveals who you are to you. It reveals the fundamental temporality of your existence and, and, and so on. He might be going a little far with the fundamentals of it, but in this pandemic that we found ourselves in, how have you found this? How have you been dealing with it and responding to it, particularly in terms of what it's maybe teaching you about yourself? Well, for me personally, uh, this pandemic has been an experience of spending even more time with my family 
than, than I usually do because I haven't traveled anywhere. And my wife, who is a clinical psychologist, also had to work from home. Our daughter has uh, gone to school from home via her computer screen. So uh, we've been together nonstop. So for me, it's been, uh, even though it's a fairly restricted sociality, it's been a hyper-social time. Uh, so actually, uh, last week, as uh, Norwegians had the ban on going to their cabins lifted, because we had a ban against that. Norwegians are crazy about their cabins. And the fear was that if everybody goes to their cabins, it will simply overwhelm health services in these places where they have their cabins. So we had a ban on going to our cabins. But last week, that ban was lifted. And my first response was to go straight to the cabin and spend a couple of days completely by myself. So um, I guess my experience with this was a little bit different than most people. Uh, I haven't suffered from a lack of sociality, but to some extent from a surplus. <laughs> but have you found, uh, and this is maybe where we'll finish up, I'd like to get back to this notion of repetition. I'm finding that each day is very much like the last, and it, it's been like that for the past few weeks. I'm starting to have trouble keeping track of what day it is, because all those all those prompts that tell me what day it is, like if I'm doing such and such, then it must be a Wednesday – a lot of those temporal markers have just disappeared. So I'm in this state of limited daily activity, but I'm not particularly bored, not yet anyway. I'm actually finding it kind of relaxing. And I wonder if you're experiencing that yourself, or if you're not, you could analyse my experience. Why am I not bored? I feel like I should be suffering more than I am. Well, perhaps you've sort of shifted perspective finding more significance in the sort of things that you tend to overlook while living a more active life. That uh, actually, even though from a distance, all those days may look very similar, as you go through them, they actually contain a lot of variety. And because you're in the situation you're in, you actually notice those varieties, you find uh, something to care about uh, in various small, apparently insignificant activities that you tended to overlook. I guess that would perhaps be my take on it. I'm always reminded of John Cage's musical insight that if you find something boring for two minutes then listen to it for four minutes and if you still find it boring then listen to it for eight minutes and eventually you'll find it interesting so there might be a uh, a life lesson there i think it was right <laughs> lars svensson professor of philosophy at the university of bergen in norway and the author of a philosophy of boredom publication details on the website. This has been The Philosopher's Zone and you can find us via the RN homepage or the ABC Listen app. And I'm taking us out with Craftwork partly as a nod to the sort of musical minimalism that we were talking about earlier in the program, but also of course in memory of Florian Schneider, a founding member of Craftwork who died this week. And if you haven't had enough of boredom, make sure you catch RN's All in the Mind later on today. Reporter Carl Smith is going to be asking which personality types are better suited to dealing with boredom and exploring the ways in which we might respond to boredom more creatively. That's all in the mind. Catch it on RN today at 12.30 or via podcast anytime you like. 
And I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company this week. You can tweet me at David P Zone. See you next time. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.